desist from your labors. But yet this seventh day is so important that God didn't just rest on this seventh day. He, he made this day holy. Right? You notice that. It just doesn't say, oh well, you know, God rested on the seventh day. But this seventh day is special because God blessed the seventh day and made it holy so that from then on, uh, mankind would have to follow the pattern of what God did and rest on that seventh day. Now, this is really interesting, right? Because, you know, there were six days of creation, but yet there is no mandate for us to follow the other days of creation. No, you know, so there's not like Monday, okay, that's like uh, Earth Day or something, right? Then Tuesday, uh, that's Light Day, right? No, there's no mandate to follow any other day of creation, but there is a mandate to follow what God did on that seventh day, which is to rest. So why is that seventh day so important? Well, I think the first thing is, it seems as if one of the purposes for mankind is rest. Okay, so you see, I'm giving you one of the answers to the question. What is the purpose of man, right? One of the purpose of humanity is rest, right? It's hardwired into humanity and creation to rest. Because, um, as Nick was saying last week, you have to sort of concentrate here, right? Whether we believe in a strict seven-day creation or not, or whether we just see the seven days of creation as an expression of the orderliness of God's uh, working in time and uh, bringing us orderly creation. But yet, it tells us that for six days we are to work and one day we are to rest because that seventh day is special. And I think that seventh day is special because later on in the Old Testament, it tells us, as we can see up here on the slide, right, that Israel, God's people, are meant to keep that seventh day special. Okay? So as part of the Ten Commandments God gave to Moses, he said, remember the seventh day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but on the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. Okay, It's a rest day to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you, nor your son or daughter, nor your manservant or maidservant, nor your animals, nor the alien within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, but he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the seventh day, Sabbath day and made it holy. Okay? And then go, later on it goes on to explain Exodus chapter 23. Six days do your work, but on the seventh day do not work, so that your ox and your donkey may rest, and the slave born in your household and the alien as well may be refreshed. So here we see that the, the remembering or the setting apart or the sanctification of the seventh day was for the purpose of refreshment and rest. So rest is not sinful, right? I mean, uh, you know, rest is not uh, something that's bad, but rest is actually part of the purpose of creation, right? Part of the purpose of our humanity. So even though we live in a world where many, many people do not believe in God, do not believe in creation, but yet they still rest on a, a Sunday, right? In fact, I remember reading somewhere that apparently... Um, in the Soviet Union, when the communists were in control, they wanted to make the people more productive. Right? So instead of having 
seven days of work and oh, sorry, six days of work and one day rest. They thought, okay, we'll make the people work a bit harder. So you have only ten days of work and then one day one day of rest. But they found that actually people just became burnt out and exhausted. So I think God made us in such a way as to work and then rest. That's part of who we are, and that's one of the purposes for which we are made in. But I think it would be very simplistic to just say that that's all the reason why God made it holy, right? Because if you look very carefully, He made it holy or He sanctified that day, right? So it has a spiritual significance, that seventh day. It's not just a practical rest day, right? But there is a, there is a spiritual significance to it. And I think that this spiritual significance is taken up by Jesus and the New Testament later on because this rest day that we are to rest on and sanctify actually teaches us as humans that there is more to life than just this life. See, later Jesus says this, right? In Matthew chapter 11, He says, Come to me, all of you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take your, my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And then again in Hebrews, it talks about how we have never really entered into the true rest. It still remains that some will enter that rest. Those who formerly had the gospel preached to them did not go in because of their disobedience. Therefore God again set a certain day calling it today when a long time ago, sorry, a long time later he spoke to David as was said before. Today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken later of another day. There remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For anyone who enters God's rest also rests from his own work just as God did from his. Let us therefore make every effort to enter that rest so that no one will fall by following the example of disobedience. So this Sabbath rest that we see right at the beginning in Genesis chapter 2 actually looks forward to the permanent Sabbath rest for God's people. Right? So if you look here in Hebrews, if you look what Jesus said, the Sabbath rest that we get uh, every seventh day is not something which is a permanent thing in itself, but it looks forward to the permanent Sabbath rest that we will get forever and ever when we enter into heaven. See, and I think this is a very important concept, right? Because... I remember when I was growing up, I had a friend of mine, and uh, he led a very, very, uh, I guess, uh, pampered life. You know, so all you know what he used to do was he used to work as a doctor once in a while when he felt like it. He was he came from a very rich family. He played golf a lot, spent his nights gambling, playing poker with his friends, and he had lots of girlfriends. But he was always restless. You know, there was a, a sense of uh, discontentment in his life. He was not a happy person. And I think that actually we can never find our true rest in this life, right? But rather, we only find our true rest when we go to heaven. And every seventh day when we have that rest, it is actually prompting us to look forward uh, to that Sabbath rest. So I know that uh, in this world that we live in, people have this saying, you know, TGIF, right? 
thank God it's Friday. So that, oh, you know, you go on the radio, oh, you know, thank God it's Friday because now that it's Friday, you can look forward to the rest of the weekend. But actually, I think the world fails to understand that the, the, the weekend rest is not the ultimate rest that you can achieve, isn't it? Because the ultimate rest is actually the heavenly rest, which is a TGIH, right? Okay. Thank God it's heaven, right? Okay. Because I think that right at the very beginning, as we see right on in Genesis chapter 2, it is actually pointing us forward to the purpose of life, which is true rest. Not just in the Sabbath, but found in heaven itself. So anyway, verse 4, we move on to the account of the expansion of the sixth day. So in verse 4 it says, uh, This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created. When the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, now no shrub had yet appeared on the earth, and no plant had yet sprung up. For the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth, and there was no one to work the ground. But streams came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east, in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. And in the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Right. Now, I always struggle with this passage. Right? And if you were reading it properly, you would also struggle with this passage. Because if you were to read it right, it seems like uh, the, the, the sixth day... <clears throat> has a problem because uh, it seems like the plants and the shrubs haven't yet grown. But then if you read Genesis chapter 1, on the third day, the plants have already grown, isn't it? So how can the man be formed before the third day? It's like, you know, hey, the order's all mixed up now, right? How come the plants and the shrubs haven't been made? And then the man is made. Then it's like, so was man made on the sixth day or on the third day? But I think uh, that's because when we read it, the word here, earth, right, is a very important word right, in verse 5. See, God had not yet sent rain on the earth. Now, if you look at your footnote, the, the, the word earth there can also mean land. So, uh, does God have in view a universal idea of earth? Right, That means all over the world, there were no plants. Nothing was growing, and then earth, man was formed, and then later on he was put in the sixth day. Well, that doesn't quite make sense to me. I prefer the, the, the idea of land, right? The, the local idea of land. So I think the way I would read it is, uh, and this is the ESV. The ESV takes uh, the word land here, okay, rather than earth. Is that there was a patch of land, and this patch of land somewhere that we don't know where, uh, there was no rain yet on that land, but there were streams of water. But... There were no plants, even though the water was there. There was no shrubs, no grass, no herbs, no fruits. And 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 why was that? Well, let's look carefully, right? Because it said there, um, there was no one to work the ground, right? So if 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 you have, uh, you know, like if you have lots of water and everything, but the water 
is not irrigated so that the land gets the water and there are no, you know, seeds to be planted, then there's no, there are no shrubs, there are no plants. So it's almost as if there's this barren piece of land and there's streams of water and everything, but there's nothing growing there because there is no one there to work the land. And that's why in verse 7, God creates man in order to work the land. Okay? So that's where, that's the way you, you're meant to kind of read it, right? So God takes the dust of the ground and he forms like a potter creating a plate or a bowl, mankind. But obviously it's inanimate, right? It has form but no life. But God breathes life into what he has formed from the dust and therefore man is created. But not only is man created by the breath of God, but also man is placed in a in a place which is like paradise. Right? If you look in verse 9, there were all kinds of trees that God caused to grow which were pleasing to the eye, good to look at, but also good for food. And mankind had the freedom to eat from all these trees, except from the two trees which we'll reflect on later next week, or the week later, the tree of life and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. There was an abundance of water, and in verse 11, you can see that there were plenty of precious stones, gold, and all that sort of stuff. In fact, if you look at um, this word in verse 8, the garden in the east, in Eden, the word here, Eden, literally means luxury, pleasure, or paradise. Right? That's what the word Eden literally means. So, God gave man the breath of life, and he put man in paradise, in luxury. Now, as we read Genesis chapter 1 and 2, you can see that there's a great difference in the relationship between man and God, isn't it? You see, in Genesis chapter 1, as we, I just read earlier on, if you're paying attention, you can see that the way God and man are sort of described is a very functional way, right? So God made man, and God said, okay, go and have lots of children, and go and subdue the earth, and you know, go away and be done with it, right? But here, the relationship between God and man is a very, it's a very relational one, right? It's, a, it's like a caring relationship, like God fashions man, breathes life into man, puts man into this wonderful place. It is a picture of um, a God who is caring, who is loving, and who is, you know, gently looking after mankind and, and giving the best to man. Now, that shows to me uh, the second purpose or the meaning of life, that, that we need to know God as a loving and caring God. Right? God is not a capricious, angry God. God, when he created man, was a caring, loving God. Right? And we'll see that even more next week. But there seems to be a particular gentleness and a caring nature in the way God made man here. Now, I remember last week, Nick talked about um, uh, uh, Genesis and creation and evolution. Right? And, and I'd like to go back, if I may, to what he said last week a bit. Because evolution and uh, Genesis do not need to be contradictory. 
Right? There are many very famous scientists around the world who are committed Christians. So there's this guy called Francis Collins. Okay, He is the, the head of the hum, Human Genome Project. That means that he's the head of the team which maps out the whole gene, DNA structure in the human body. Right, So he's a super duper scientist. Like he's not just a run of the mill scientist. He's like the you know, like the, the brain of the brains are, right? Okay. And he believes in uh, Christ, but he doesn't believe in a creation. He believes in evolution. And I think the problem that many Christians have is not the problem of evolution, because I believe that you can be a Christian and believe in evolution. I think the problem that we have as Christians is not evolution, but evolutionism. Right? Where evolution itself becomes like a god and takes the place of God. And I think that this is where, right at this very beginning, we can see the difference between evolutionism and the God of the Bible, right? Because the God of the Bible is seen here as loving and caring and systematically creating man to be put into a world which is loving and is perfectly conditioned for him. How different it is to believe in a God called evolutionism, where basically, if you believe like in Richard Dawkins and things like that, we basically have a God or an idol which is uncaring, faceless, and it's a vicious dog-eat-dog world, right? Because really, when you, when you think of atheism and evolutionism, that is a sort of God that we have, that we, we come from nothing, and we just basically are made for competition and survival of the fittest, and uh, that's it, right? It's an uncaring God. It is a God which is faceless and doesn't care for us. But the God that we read about in Genesis chapter 2 is very different. It is a God which actually cares for mankind, has put mankind into this world. So the first meaning of life was that we were made for rest, eternal rest. The second meaning, I think, is we were made to know a God who cares for us and loves us. Now, the third meaning comes at the last second half of Genesis 2, right? Because in verse 15 it says, The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to take care of it. Now remember, if we go back to verse 5, uh, what was the reason why uh, there was no plants in the ground is because there was no one working the ground. So God put man into the world to work it and to take care of it. Right? So the purpose that God has put us into the world is not so that we can indulge ourselves and uh, you know exploit the world for our own good, but to look after the world and to take care of the world under God, under his good purposes. Now, if you think of modern man, I remember talking to some people, right? It's quite interesting. I said, what is your goal in life? And they're like, early retirement. Right? So their goal for many people is to make as much money as they can so that I can retire in my early 40s and I never have to work a day in the life, in my life anymore. Lah, or, you know, I only work for the sake of money. Right? Well, I guess if we look at the seventh day, we can always over, overstate the seventh day. Say, well, actually, God made us for rest. So why can't I rest the rest of my life, right? But actually, that's not the way God puts it, right? Because actually, rest is to desist from the work that we are made to do as well. Right? It's not good to be resting all the time. Neither is it good to be working all the time. But 
But one of the purposes for which we were made for is to to take care of the world, to look after the world under God. Now the problem is that uh, many people work not because they see their purpose as taking care of the world under God, right? but rather to work to exploit the world and abuse the world for their own benefit, uh, for their own enjoyment, for their own money. right? So I thought, okay, lah. I must think of an illustration. So we think of Cecil the Lion. Okay, so I'm sure you all know about Cecil the Lion, right? You all know Cecil the Lion? So anyway, Cecil the Lion uh, is this a uh, very famous lion in Zimbabwe. Like he's, he's like some tourist attraction or something, okay? Anyway, so he's quite a good-looking lion, right? Okay, so he is. And uh, anyway, so this American dentist uh, went to Zimbabwe to, to do um, sports hunting with his crossbow. And I think the hunters that he uh, uh, he, he employed... Uh, got Cecil the lion out of the nature reserve and then uh, the dentist uh, shot him and killed him and they skinned the lion and cut off his head because he wanted to put his head in America somewhere. Now, if we, if we reflect on what uh, happened to Cecil the lion uh, compared to um, uh, what God tells us in Genesis chapter 2, it's very different, isn't it, to what God actually says that we are supposed to do. Uh, you know, he didn't tell Adam, hey, go and kill the animals for sport, right? You know, you know just whatever you feel like doing, you know, just uh, do it to, to, you know, so you can put the heads on the wall or something. I don't know. Maybe you can kill it for food. You can kill it if it's a danger to man, kill it if it's a danger to others. But here, Cecil the lion was uh, killed for entertainment. So I think that there is a great sense in which our purpose in life cannot be just that we work for money. We work so that we can exploit the world. We work so that we can get something out of it. But part of why God puts us here in this world is to work under God to take care of it for God. You know, it's not so that we can retire and uh, do nothing, right? So I think that part of the purpose of our life must be if we understand the purpose of creation to take care of this world and to work the world under the good purposes of God. Now, another uh, important point comes at the end of this section, right? Because Adam doesn't work and take care of the world by himself. But rather in verse 18 onwards, God says, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds of the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the name called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds of the air, and all the wild animals. But for Adam, there was no suitable helper to be found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was asleep, he took one of the man's ribs and closed up the place of flesh. Then the Lord God made the woman from the rib he had taken out the man. He brought her to the man. The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. Now here is a really startling thing. 
Because if you read from Genesis 1 to Genesis 2, we keep seeing the pattern, right? And it was good, and it was good, and it was good, and it was very good. But here for the first time was something which was not good. And what was not good was that the man was alone and there was no suitable helper. No helper for him to work and care for the land that God had put him in. So here the first thing that we see is Adam has authority uh, under God to name the animals, right? But the animals themselves do not prove to be a suitable helper for Adam. Right? No animal uh, could make up for the lack of Adam being alone. So I was reading that you know in Japan, uh, a lot of people are not married. When they grow old, they have pets, especially dogs, right? But even if you had a dog or a cat, it cannot take the place of other human relationships, right? Our social needs, our cultural needs, our emotional, relational, even sexual needs cannot be met by an animal, be it a pet, right? So here, uh, God creates woman out of man. And I think this is what the picture is here, right? That out of mankind, the man, woman comes out. That's why it says woman for she was taken out of man. Because actually in the Hebrew, uh, the word woman is actually the word out of man. Now it's very interesting because if you look at this passage, there are lots of implications for our life. First thing is, the woman is equal to man in every way, right? Even though she is God's, she is the man's helper. She's equal to man because she's equally human. Because she comes out of mankind. Right? She's born of my bones, flesh of my flesh. Also, both are made in the image of God. Therefore, there is no uh, place for saying that woman and man are unequal before God. Right? So, you know, in some countries like in India or in uh, China, they treat women less than men. But, but biblically speaking, there is no such thing here. There's no such picture here. And there's no place for racism because we all come from the same human stock. But yet, at the same time, even though man and woman are same, but yet there is a difference, isn't it? Because there is a distinction between man and woman. See, God didn't choose another man to be Adam's helper. But he chose a woman to be Adam's helper. So in a sense, right from the very beginning, we see as well that homosexuality, as we understand it today, has no place in the original creation. right? And they're different uh, because there seems to be a distinction between how men and women are to relate. right? They are... They are distinct, but yet they are one flesh. That's why it says there in verse 24, that is why when a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, they become one flesh. You see, so here it says that actually, because men and women are of one flesh to begin with, when they come together, they are actually fulfilling their relational role. Now, obviously what's in view here must be sexuality as well, isn't it? Uh, you know, I think that when you read verse 24 and 25, you, you cannot sort of exclude out how sexuality is involved to become one flesh. And I think this is a very, very important point that I, I want to make, right? Because, you know, sometimes you see advertising about how there's always this woman eating some apple, right? And talking about, you know, selling motor oil or apples, right? Something like 
you know, original sin, right? But actually, original sin is not sex, okay? Because some people actually believe that original sin is sex. But actually, we see that even before the fall in chapter 3, there was already sex in the Garden of Eden, right? God made man and women to become one flesh, and sex is not part of sin, okay? That is a lie of the world. And we see also well that being one flesh was not uh, for the sole reason of procreation. Okay, uh, men and women came together, not so that they just only had children. It's not like what the Catholic Church says, right? So for the Catholic Church, they teach that you know every time men and women come together, it must be for the sole purpose of procreation, because that must be the purpose of sex. But I think if you look in Genesis chapter two. It doesn't seem to be that way. They were both naked and they felt no shame. They came together, right? So I think part of um, the purpose of making men and women for them to come together is for the sake of relationship, right? For relationship. That when men and women, if you read in Genesis chapter 1 verse 27, were made in the image of God, part of it was because of the relational uh, aspect of the Trinity, which is now found in our relationship with one another. See, part of uh, the, I was reading somewhere that the worst torture that uh, you can, you know, uh, impose on somebody is to have solitary confinement. You know, so I was reading somewhere that uh, I don't know, communists don't know some place. What they will actually do is they put people in solitary confinement, and they just stop them having any human contact whatsoever. So people wear these soft slippers so you can't see them coming and they just put food inside and they're just stuck there for days and days and years and years and they just grow mad right after a couple of months because we are made for relationship and i think that we are part of the purpose and meaning of life made for relationships right god has made in us in the image of god plural relationship with one another and that is one of the purposes of life we are not meant to live solitary lives, but we're meant to live in relationship. Relationship with God and relationship with one another. But you notice here that marriage cannot be like an idol, right? So it's not as if men and women come together and they have live, happily, uh, live happily ever after in marriage, but they come together in marriage in order to serve God. See, one of the problems that I think we have in today's society is that m- many people make marriage like an idol. Right? You know, it's like marriage becomes like the the be all and end all of my life. But marriage is not the ends, but in God's eyes, marriage here is the means by which we serve God. We use our marriages to serve God. So I remember uh, if you if you ever read this Christopher Ash book, it's this super thick book, I can lend it to you one day. And the title is Marriage Sex in the service of God, which is a really profound way of thinking of marriage, right? That actually marriage is not an end in itself, but marriage is to be used in service of God. Because that's what Genesis 2 is about, isn't it? God made man, God made woman out of man, together they are to serve him in the Garden of Eden. So as we look at this passage, I think it tells us a lot about our purpose in life, the meaning of life. We are made for rest. Right? Yes, rest in this life 
in a cyclical way, but we are made for eternal rest. That is one of the purposes for which we are made in. We are made for work. Uh, not work so that we can get more and more wage, you know, or exploit or abuse the world, but work as in to care for the world that God has put us in. We are made for relationships. Relationships with one another, but also relationships between men and women. And most importantly, we are made to know a loving and caring Creator God. Right? In the way that that is really profound, that God actually cares for us and loves us. That gives us meaning in life. See, if we don't know a God who cares and loves for us, loves us, then that in itself, you know, evacuates meaning and purpose from our life. So I hope that as we've looked at Genesis chapter 2, you are able to see all these things and are able to see that, you know, life has meaning. Life is not meaningless or purposeless, but actually through all these things, rest, work, relationship with one another and a relationship with a caring and loving God. That is what gives life uh, meaning. Okay? So let me close in prayer and then we can have some questions. Dear Fathers, we we read Genesis chapter 2. Help us to see uh, all the implications that it teaches us some really deep and profound truths. That life is meaningful. Life has purpose as you have made it. That we are made to rest, but not just rest every seven days, but to look forward to the eternal rest in heaven. That you have planted a seed in each and every one of us that is restless until it finds its rest in you in heaven. That life is also filled with meaning because we are here to look after the earth as you have uh, put us in. And also that we are made for relationships, man-woman relationships, but also relationships with one another. But also, dear Father, to know that we were made with great care and love by you, a creator God, and that indeed uh, you are not a a faceless, uh, vicious God, but a God who cares for the welfare of us. And we pray for all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.